Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show, to be able to keep it on the air. Every little bit helps truly, truly, truly. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And go ahead. You can take care of that now and then come back to the show. It is so vital, really, in order to be able to have continued weekly podcast episodes for as long as we can keep them going. Thank you so much. I also want to mention, please go to my YouTube channel. My podcast team has put together some wonderful videos from the episodes. And I want you to be able to check them out and check out any of the other videos that I've done in the past and also mm, ones that I'll be making in the future. There is a, a video that I want you to be able to check out because it is about people who have been in therapy with therapists who are kind of cult leaders of their own or are just really unhealthy, controlling people who like to make their clients dependent on them. So check out the signs of healthy or unhealthy therapy experience. And so for today, we have Caroline Lorson, who is back on our show. She is a survivor of the troubled teen industry. At the age of 14, she was forcibly removed from her home in Southern California by two transporters and was flown across the country to a lockdown behavior modification school in upstate New York. Caroline stayed at this facility for 29 months and was stripped of all of her human rights and subjected to coercive thought reform techniques. It took Caroline years to recover from her experiences, and she now actively works to reform the troubled teen industry through an organization called Breaking Code Silence and with her podcast, Inside the Program. Breaking Code Silence is a movement organized by a network of survivors and activists to raise awareness of the problems in the troubled teen industry and the need to reform. By using their many voices to tell their stories, they aim to create change and protect vulnerable youth from abuse. So here's part two of my powerful conversation with Caroline Lorson. There was a facility specifically that I'd, I'd like to speak on real quick. Uh, it was in Mexico. And the name of this facility was High Impact. So this facility, High Impact, they, they had two facilities that were known to be their most gruesome, hardcore facilities that you did not want to be sent to. So they would use these facilities as a threat, right? Don't misbehave or we're going to send you to high impact. Don't misbehave or we're going to send you to Tranquility Bay in Jamaica. And they would let us know that there's no child laws to protect you there. And staff would tell us this. This was coming directly out of their mouths, saying there are no child labor laws. There are no laws there that are going to protect you. You do not want to go there. And for a long time, WASP tried to say, oh, we're not affiliated with High Impact. That's not us. They were very much affiliated. And parents can attest to that. Students can attest to that. So what would happen at High Impact um, the moment that you got there, they had something called the dog cages. And that's exactly what it sounds like. They were locked cages that were outdoors in the hot sun with concrete ground underneath. And they would lock students in there. And they would have you lay down. Um, there was an inclined surface. Uh, so whenever it would rain, it wouldn't flood in, in the cages, but uh, they would have you lay down with your head on the decline portion of it. And so a lot of the students would end up passing out and just kind of in and out of consciousness. And, and eventually they'd say, fine, fine, I'll do whatever you want me to do. 
And uh, what they would have these students do is just absolutely excruciating hard labor and pointless labor, things that made no sense. Like they would have you draw lines in the sand with a toothbrush. And another thing that I heard that they did is they would have them rake up rocks. So they would literally just be out there for seven, eight hours a day uh, or longer raking these rocks. And they would take breaks in between raking rocks and running laps. And so um, they were not allowed to brush their hair. They were not allowed to have any kind of um, hygiene at all. I believe they had a shower, cold shower, uh, that was, I believe, was also outdoors. And that what you were allowed five minutes to shower. How often do you know? Uh, I'm not aware of how often. I believe they they most likely had you do it every day. Okay, okay. Five minutes cold shower outside after going through all of this in 100 degree weather plus probably. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Out out in the sun in Mexico, you're in the desert, so it is it is hot, it is dry, um, and then of course the staff members themselves were particularly evil. I had a guest on my podcast uh, inside the program. So if you guys would like to go check that out, it's called Inside the Program. It is on all major podcast platforms. But I I had a guest on and she shared about an experience that I, I guess there had been a kitten who somehow found its way to this facility. Mm. And so she was uh, sleeping at night and they essentially slept on the ground. They would give you a mat that was about an inch thick, uh, but this kitten came over and and found her. And so uh, she tried to hide it in her covers and she was just so enamored with this little kitten. And it it, it seemed just like such a sign from uh, whoever, just some kind of hope to go on. Well, staff ended up finding this kitten uh and did incredibly cruel things to this animal in front of all the kids oh so awful it's so sadistic yeah I won't go into all of that but yeah yeah just giving that they were not uh I explain these things because I want people to understand that these are not people who were like well-meaning and it just somehow got went awry or you know, it, it was never, never had that intention of of being therapeutic or of being any kind of treatment. No. And all the while that you're saying this, I'm thinking of these parents at home who are paying so much for this, thinking that their kids are getting quote unquote better and have no idea that they're being tortured daily and nightly. And, and for some parents, they're going to be, um, I mean, they're they're going to be horrified and livid when they find out. Other parents, unfortunately, were just kind of at times happy to have kids out of their hair, you know, in some way. Oh, absolutely. Right. So for those kids, I'm sure they fared even worse because they didn't have a safe place to come back to Mm -hmm. tell their stories to. But anyway, I'm just trying to like, I'm imagining now as a parent, if you send your child somewhere, you think that everything's great, especially if what you're hearing is, you know, they're really working on their stuff. So then going back to what you were saying about the conditions and all of that, go ahead. Yeah. So it's actually, it's funny. Well, ironic, funny, not haha funny, but they, uh, their websites for these programs looked amazing. I mean, if I were a parent looking at these websites, they're showing horseback riding, they're going kayaking. These kids are going to learn how to go, you know, camping, and mm-hmm. and it just seemed like such a uh, a leadership program. This mm-hmm. like character development that is is you know going to really change kids' lives. And what truly was happening was anything but that. And to anyone who has survived these programs, it's almost laughable to think that uh, we would have ever have gone kayaking or horseback riding. Um, you know, they were trying to keep us there. The last thing they would want is for us to be on a horse where we can, you know, ride off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But these places, there were quite a few of them who ended up in 
which I also find to be ironic that most of the programs that were shut down were out of the country. Mm-hmm. The Mexican government ended up raiding these places and saying, you cannot operate here. They literally came in with machine guns and said, you have 48 hours to get out. Oh. And so they put children on buses and they brought them back to the United States where they would then disperse them to other programs within the U.S. So what I have seen, and this has actually been a recent discovery for me, but I think it's important for people to know this because a lot of people, I'm sure, are thinking, how could this happen and how could this still be happening? Mm -hmm. I've recently, just doing my research, have found very large donations to political campaigns in their areas. Mm Mm-hmm. very very large uh and and I even saw one and again this was back in 2002 but a $220,000 donation from this organization to a for-profit prison uh political party I guess these were all legislators who were either lobbying for or mm-hmm. somehow had affiliations with the for-profit right. prison industry so, yeah, if you're wondering why there hasn't been legislation or why there hasn't been any action to protect children in these places, mm-hmm. that's where your answer is. It's in the political affiliation mm-hmm. and it is in their pockets. Okay. Wow. So, right. So, I'm also curious because, you know, yes, you're talking about the people who you endured this with becoming like family of course I mean you in the trenches together and I'm just wondering about friendships that developed while you were there were you allowed to have friendships it sounds like you couldn't talk to people so what would happen if you developed a friendship I mean I'm going to say first that in most restrictive environments like this and in cultic groups People getting connected to each other is a threat, always. And people's connection with people outside, family and friends outside, is also a threat because you can be devising a plan and you can be supporting each other and you can be reinforcing each other's feelings and your story about what happened. Oh, that happened to me too. And kind of garnering a certain kind of strength and courage from that connection. And they don't want you to be empowered to do something or act on on your own behalf or try to escape. And so I'm just wondering about friendships. Did you have to sneak that? And how did that work socially? We did. So when you were quiet for that long in, in absolute silence, you develop these abilities, right? Like when, when you are not using uh, one of your senses, sometimes your other senses will become heightened to kind of make up for that. So I think a lot of us developed this like silent communication with each other, mm-hmm. whether it was through body language or through just the most minuscule gestures that would go undetected by staff. And I remember I had a best friend when I uh, first got there and we're still in contact today, but uh, they we were not allowed to, to bring any of our shoes into the dormitory area. So every single night as we came into the dorm building, we would take our shoes off. And then, of course, every single morning as we were leaving the dorm building, we would go put our shoes on. So I uh, knew that I couldn't talk to her, but I wanted to somehow make a connection or gesture that like I thought she was cool. So as I'm putting my shoe on, I kind of like accidentally kick her. Uh-huh. And so it was just that little gesture, though, and she kind of turned and looked out of at me um, out of the corner of her eye. Mm. Where, of course, you're always very weary about someone seeing you, e- e- even just acknowledging each other. Mm-hmm. So we would do things like um, we had a talk sheet, and you could sign up to be able to talk to someone. And you, at that time, they would go down the list. Uh, maybe it evened out to be once every two weeks, sometimes longer. Uh, you were able to talk to someone for five minutes. 
And so we would, and of course, this was in the presence of staff. You had to go sit down next to a staff member who would listen to the conversation. And I remember it was like, you're holding things in for so many weeks. And so the second that you're like, oh my gosh, I can talk. I mean, we were children. So we'd be like, what kind of music do you listen to? What's your favorite movie? You know, we're wanting to know everything about each other and kind of create this um, Mm -hmm. sense of normalcy, sense of togetherness. So we actually were able to just have a reunion in Utah. We went there uh, as a part of the Breaking Code Silence movement, and we were there to call on the closure of Provo Canyon School, which is one of the parent programs that gave birth to this entire industry and has for decades been just a public face of this entire industry. Mm-hmm. So, but being able to see these people again, it, we were exactly, I mean, none of us changed. <laughs> we're like, wow, this is, you were exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. And there was this sense of finding home in each other. Like what we've been missing for all of these years was each other. So I think after our trip, we decided that we're going to have to just buy a compound somewhere and we're all just going to have to move in together. <laughs> it's clearly the only solution. It's just we can't do life without each other. But we do have an incredibly tight-knit community. I know that there are also other people from different programs who don't really have that. No, they don't. I think that there's also even some survivors who are still pro-program and still feel like maybe it saved their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in some situations it may have saved their life, but in more situations than not, when people have that impression, uh, it's because they've just been so programmed to believe it because that was probably the going philosophy about it. And also I think at times when people are holding on to the programming it's sometimes because they're not ready or not able emotionally to see it for what it really was and what right. it is. And so I think that's, it's like putting that off um, because it's so devastating. Well, we were taught even in the program that we are not supposed to be a victim. Don't be a victim because you have to be accountable for everything. It was drilled into us that you cannot be a victim because if you're a victim, you're not going home. So being a victim is bad. Being accountable is good. And so I, a few years ago, had this realization uh, about several traumas that had happened in my life, even after the program, that I had never really allowed myself to be a victim. Mm. I had never really allowed myself to grieve and to feel sad for the things that happened to me. And so I went through kind of a little bit of a psychological collapse once I really, um, and, and it was a healing process for me. It was something I needed to go through to uh, really be able to feel the hurt instead of just living in this world of being accountable for everything. And I can't be the victim. I've got to be uh, accountable and and see how I played a part in creating all of this. Some things I had no control over and there was nothing I could do about it. And those things are unfortunate. So I think a lot of survivors, and I'm not trying to discredit their experience, maybe they truly did have a good experience. I'm not sure um, where that would be, but I'm open to the fact that they are an autonomous person who maybe are not ready to process or experience this unfolding of of trauma. One of the biggest things I hear from people who have survived this is that they have a lot of time that's unaccounted for, that they can't remember, that uh, just months of time that they're thinking, what happened during those months? And so for a lot of us, it's just been a process of sharing stories and reminding each other. And then that kind of will unopen or will start opening doors. So it, it, it's been quite a process. Mm-hmm. But I think now our biggest venture and journey is in changing the industry. Yes. Because it's shifted, of course. This is one of the things that they do. And we'll kind of get back to uh, talking about the program a little bit. But 
one of the things they do, and it's such a classic move from these groups, is the moment that a state government or maybe an individual will file a lawsuit or start an investigation, or maybe there is controversy at this facility, like the death of a student or something to that degree, abuse allegations, anything like that. And almost immediately what they will do is they will change their name, rebrand themselves. They will close and then reopen with the same management, same staff. And somehow it's, again, I'm not sure how they get away with this name change gig for so long without authorities realizing it's the same people. Mm -hmm. And we heard a very similar story with Provo Canyon School is they, uh, in light of all of this, uh, these abuse allegations against them, they have made a public statement that this was different management. Mm-hmm. But we can see from our records and we can also see from even just reviews online that they're using the same exact methods of restraint, chemical restraint, isolation, solitary confinement, and everything else that is proven to not be uh, have any therapeutic purpose. So, um, yeah, so what we're seeing is that although these places have shifted Mm -hmm. and they're definitely a little more formal than they used to be. So now they're even uh, they've created their own accrediting bodies to say that they are accredited and uh, have come up with their own standards of what that means. But still, it's a largely unregulated, untouched Mm -hmm. industry in the U.S. And you can look up troubled teens. If you just Google troubled teens, it will bring you directly to several links for boarding schools, wilderness programs, everything uh, that is very much related to that industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're trying to preserve themselves for their lives and they've spent a lot of money lobbying and uh, taking strides to self-preserve. But I think a lot of it has just been lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. The public has not been aware that this is happening enough to really put the pressure on these people to close. Right. I a couple of things I want to be able to respond to that you said. One is, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, how many cults are there typically? And I can give, you know, an idea. There's sort of this number that's been kind of passed around over the years. There are three to five thousand cultic groups in the United States alone. But part of the reason that you can't get really an accurate number and another reason too, which is that people are often told they were not in something abusive, that what happened to them they deserved. And like the people who think it was for their betterment. So they're not gonna think they're not gonna say, Oh yeah, this was an abusive place or I was in a cult. Is that they change names? That happens all the time. So uh, a group, yes, if there has been an expose or, you know, um, they're known by that name and now it's become infamous because of that name, then they just change it. And yeah, they, for a while, and sometimes not forever, but for a while, they can go on undetected and you have no idea that it's the exact same group. And so that's why you need to do your research. And then also going back to something that you said about this girl who had a dislocated arm that she had to fill out paperwork, which I can't imagine doing with a dislocated arm, but and among other things. But it's like they were keeping records to look legit. Like, oh, well, we did the right thing. We had her fill out a form that showed that she needed medical care. And what's missing, of course, is the, well, what do they do about it part? Right. And I just think of so many of these places, have you fill out forms and have you sign things? And also have you sign your rights away and you don't realize that that's what you're signing. And then you're signing non-disclosure agreements, but they're saying, no, 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 this is just regular paperwork. And, you know, and your parents are signing a million things. And then everyone else has to sort of um, just kind of be the ones to make this program look legitimate and to protect this program. But there are no built-in protections for the people signing all these pieces of paper. I know we're coming towards the end of our time, but I wanted to go back to something just as 
you were talking about people being in this program and then leaving the program. And I'm so glad you've been able to connect with each other and to a great degree and have that as a resource. What happens when you leave a program like this? What, what happens to you and what shape are you in? And what happens when you re-enter the world and go back home? And you, do you start to believe these things about yourself that you were told? Are, do, you, do your parents notice a difference in you or they're alarmed? I mean, if you can take us through, I know mean, it's like its own show. We could talk about that for hours, but if you can kind of give us a sense of all of that. It was incredibly jarring leaving that program. So I was required to graduate the program. My mom wanted me to complete the program and she made it very clear from day one that that was it. Mm-hmm. I, I got there when I was 14. So I had the potential to be there for four years, which I knew, no, yeah. that would be a complete nightmare. So I, I really tried to internalize what they were teaching because I wanted to be satisfactory enough to be able to go home. And so by the end of it, I was so programized. I had been completely reformed to this thought of thinking, and uh, they even had ways for us to rate our friends, right? Are these uh, what they would call working friends or non-working friends, which means what activities are they partaking in? How do they dress? What music do they listen to? Do they smoke cigarettes when adults aren't around? What are the uh, criteria for being a a a good friend or a, or a bad friend. And so there was this very rigid structure and a very black and black and white way of seeing the world. And so there was also a lot of uh, religious overtones. So most of these owners uh, in the WASP entity specifically were Mormon. And so when we left, I had a very skewed view of the world. I, 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 started really seeing things as being good or bad and whether that's from television shows and or music or again clothing or even people and so I found myself in this place of doing a lot of judging and not in a hateful way but coming from a place of fear oh that's bad oh I can't listen to that that's that's bad music or that's bad tv I can't you know, let let this almost kind of this like purity complex, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I had a really difficult time. My my, I had finally graduated. I was sixteen and a half, a little over, and I went to a regular public high school. My mom had moved to a new state at that time, and so I was it just disoriented in every way, mm-hmm. in a completely new state starting at this high school that uh, was in a very wealthy little town in Massachusetts. So I went from San Diego, California, to now living up in a mountain community in Massachusetts. And lots of people there had second homes and would, you know, constantly were traveling. And, uh, and, and so I felt very much like an outsider. Mm-hmm. I had come from this place of, again, this militant program where we had dollar store shampoo and conditioner and bars of soap and just bare minimum everything. And of course, we weren't allowed to do anything like do our hair, wear makeup. And so then going from that to now being in a public high school at almost 17 years old, it was overwhelming. And from what I hear from other survivors, I'd say that the most common experiences upon being released is that a completely skewed reality, a completely skewed sense of self, even just complete and total loss of identity. Who am I? What am I good at? What am I here for? What is my worth? What is my value? And also just resentment or feelings of loss over missing out on two and a half years of of your teenage years. And so, and just being disconnected from the world. If anything happened during that time that was newsworthy or any major events, uh, we knew nothing. Again, television, movies, and I know that stuff can seem irrelevant, but when we are such a culture based off of media and, and 
things like that. I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation where I'll tell people like, okay, if it came out between 2004, 2006, I have no idea about it. So I'm just, you know, if it's a movie that everyone saw, I probably didn't see it, probably won't know anything about it. Uh, And even after that initial time of adjusting to being outside of the program, most of us have developed post-traumatic stress disorder, extreme hypervigilance, flashbacks, nightmares, uh, just feelings of uneasiness. And then, of course, a lot of us have gone on to develop addiction, addictions, um, trying to numb that feeling of hypervigilance and that feeling of doom or something bad's going to happen. Uh, so yeah, that's where we find ourselves now. I think uh, for most of us is healing and trying to discover who we are outside of that trauma. And also I think peeling back the layers of residual programming, you know, is this me or is this something that was drilled into me by this institution? So that has been an ongoing journey too, of just trying to find our baseline again. You know, right. And I think also I've heard about a lot of suicides and attempted suicides. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who came back home and, and to situations where they couldn't kind of safely land. It wasn't safe there too. And then they really had nowhere to go. And those are the worst situations. Also, there are some people I've talked to those families, once they heard what went on, it was hard for them to not want to go and just kill these people. They're like, let me at them, you know? And so that's actually very healing for a a kid, a teen to have that experience of their parents wanting to then run and protect them and and really having had no idea. And if they had, they would have done something. I think just as we, we finish up, you know, uh, so trigger warning, I'm going to use the word accountable. What I, what I want, along with I'm sure everyone else who's gone through this and hears about it, is I want them to be accountable. And having this whole focus of everyone needing to hold themselves up to a certain standard is a deflection. It's a way to just keep all the focus on you and not on them. And so for anyone listening who is in law, who's in government, who uh, is in advocacy work, what do you think people need to do or, or find out about or put in place in order to hold these places accountable? Yes. So if you are listening to this right now and you would like to find out more about our cause, our mission, and the action that we are taking currently, you can go to our website and that is breakingcodesilence.net, I believe. I believe it's a .net, or you can just type it in Google, Breaking Code Silence. It'll bring you to our website. Uh, We have a place where you can donate through there. We are currently organizing. There are a group of us volunteers, and I am actually the lead uh, legislation, the lead of legislation. And so we will be doing federal legislation, state legislation, and then we have um, some other wonderful fundraising opportunities that are going to be coming up. Those will be live events. Essentially, what we are wanting to do now is to spread the message, to educate people on what happened and what is still happening. And then hopefully our our big goal is that we would like to work with state government and, and federal government to create standards of treatment for kids in a residential environment. I think it's one of those things that everyone just assumes is there. Oh, sure. They're protecting kids in that treatment setting. Of course they are. Of course. Well, no, there's a lot of them that are not, in fact. And up until presently, there hasn't been that requirement for them to be licensed or for them to be credentialed through the state. So then what happens is when someone wants to file a report against a facility, they have no one to file that report to right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing essentially that a state department could do because it's out of their jurisdiction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We could go into that. I could explain a whole lot about accreditation and uh, also just credentials in in state government. So we are trying to uh, change the law. It has to be changed. And also to bring more awareness to the fact that these places are 
let me rephrase this. There's a group of people who sometimes they're therapists, sometimes they are what we call educational consultants. And these people make a lot of money referring kids into these programs. And so they've made this whole like almost like an MLM scheme of, you know, we're going to give kickbacks and, and all kinds of bonuses to people who refer kids in. Uh, and so we're trying to dismantle a lot of that. But at the same time, these uh, groups have now evolved into trade organizations that pretty much will spend a lot of money lobbying to preserve their institutions. So that is why it is essential for us right now to not only um, have funds donated and available to our causes, because we know that this is going to take many trips to Washington, D.C., many trips all around the nation to actually meet with politicians and meet with legislators and, and lawmakers so we can educate them on why this is a process, uh, uh, excuse me, why this is a problem. So go check out Inside the Program podcast. You can search for that on any major podcast platform. It is on Apple. It's on Spotify. Um, again, education is so necessary on this matter right now. Go down the rabbit hole. It's interesting. It's also gruesome and can be horrifying. So just be in check with your mental state before diving in. But uh, we also have a website called Wasp Survivors. So you can go to, and that's WWASP Survivors or the Breaking Code Silence site. And we will be updating that with anything that comes up and any new opportunities to be a part of our movement. Thank you so much. Thank you for speaking with me about this. I'm sure there are days and days of stories. And, um, and so I know it's hard to kind of narrow it down. And, and we will probably speak again. This is an ongoing issue. Not every program is horrific. So and and it is about determining and how to find out and that there should be safeguards put in place across the board and oversight and and and, and qualifications, etc. Right. Right. And knowing that there are some places that are pretty healthy, you already have an example of how to make it okay. Like you don't have to invent it. It already exists in some places. Just use that. Have people you know, who have qualifications I mean, so many of these places and organizations in general who, you know, that, that are so sick, it's because of who's in charge. And if you have someone in charge who actually is qualified, who is kind, who really wants to make a difference in people's lives, then you're going to have a program that's okay and that's healthy. So again, there are a couple of examples, not as many as there should be, of some healthy programs, but there are there are so many people who are hurting and who are injured from this and have not had, they haven't been believed, they haven't been able to use their experience and have their voice heard. So I am so happy that you're giving people a forum for that, that you're offering people some hopefulness about safeguards being put in place, but it takes, it's going to take a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of people caring about this. And it's going to take a lot of people believing the stories. And so, again, thank you. And, yes, people definitely check out what Caroline is doing and providing and what she's a part of. And thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy being here with you today. And I, I love being able to speak with someone who has that knowledge and um, also, an incredible platform of people who are also interested in, in, in issues and matters like this. So thank you for sharing your space with me. And it has been such a joy. And we will absolutely do uh, another, another session. And you'll have to come back onto my show as well as we kind of go through this journey. Let's see what the next year looks like. It's going to be incredible. So we are hoping for big, big change. So you will hopefully be seeing us on some headlines. That's what I'm hoping. Fingers crossed. We, yes. <laughs> will be a lot of media coverage. <laughs> so good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Okay, good. 
great to talk to you. You too. One more thing before you go. I want to thank Carolyn for her openness and being willing to share not only what she experienced, but some of the experiences she had heard about that were horrifying, disturbing, upsetting. Last week after the podcast, I had a message for parents to let them know to be very careful before sending their children off to a program they hadn't fully researched that might leave them in worse shape or might give them problems that they didn't have before they were sent there. And in today's message, I wanted to send a little kind of message of my own to the teens or to the adults who were the teens who were sent to some of these programs. When you're dealing with a mostly unregulated field, and again, there's some programs that are fine, but clearly this show is about programs that are not, then there's no governing body in some of these programs. There is no system of standards. There's no way to ensure that the programs or the people in them abide by certain ethical rules. They are and can be a free-for-all for abusers and people who enjoy taking control over other people's lives far too much and making a lot of money while doing it. The issue that I wanted to make sure to talk about, though, was this idea, kind of a mind-bending idea, that here, while you're being treated by people who are being abusive, and again, not following any kind of standards, and you're being treated like a criminal, even though their behavior is criminal towards you, you're the one who's going to be held accountable. You're the one who's going to be seen as someone who needs to remain honest. And also, that if you tell people about the abuses going on, your credibility is going to be tarnished. And that is actually true for a lot of teenagers. Teenagers are up against a great amount of resistance when it comes to adults believing them in general. Sometimes it's because of the developmental stage that they're in where they're prone to more emotion and have also not yet developed the parts of their brain that regulate them and the parts of the brain that help them kind of have more judgment and reasoning and self-control, planning, long-range thinking, etc., etc. That part really doesn't get fully developed until about the age of 25. But it doesn't mean, as the people who are listening know, that if a teenager tells you something that seems outrageous or that you just don't want to believe, that then what they are saying is unbelievable and they are fabricating or embellishing or just flat out lying. And so there are plenty of people who are sent to these places because of being gay, trans, anything, anything that's part of their wiring, nothing that they've done wrong. And there are plenty of people also who are sent to places to manage their behavior, but the reason that they're acting out is because something else is wrong and they don't have the words for it and they have no one to talk to or they're feeling forgotten about and sometimes getting negative attention is better than getting no tension at all. It's much better for a teenager to get someone's attention than to feel invisible. And so when you've been programmed to feel that you are the one who's not trustworthy, you are the bad one, and you've been traumatized, and you come out and you might have post-traumatic stress syndrome, you might have nightmares, you might feel kind of dissociated and jump at loud noises or jump back when someone raises their hand near you, even if it's innocently done, then that means that what happened to you there was truly wrong and traumatizing to your system. You also don't want to ever feel like you have felt where you are at the mercy of people who are doing very bad things. And you're also witnessing them doing very bad things to other people, and there's nothing that you can do to stop them. 
that's actually what causes some of the people's depression when they come out because of what they observe or what they were made to participate in, to yell at their friends, to kind of tell on them so they got into trouble. They leave feeling that they've done something against their conscience. And so I want to tell you a little story. I had a woman in my office who was 23 at the time. This was about two years ago. And again, as always, I've gotten permission to tell clients stories, even if I don't mention their name still. I want you to know that I'm not just telling people stories without their consent. She was sent to a wilderness program because she had been caught stealing things from other people's backpacks at school. She knew she had a problem and she felt a lot of shame about it and wanted to get some help. But when she told her parents, they sort of pictured a life of crime. And instead of having a conversation with her about it to find out why she was doing it, they decided, because they had a relative who had been sent to jail just kind of recently, and they were really afraid the same would happen to her, that they should really clamp down on this. And so they called a place that came to get her. And truth is, the reason that she was stealing, she says, was because there was really a sense of insecurity she had. Her family didn't make as much money as some of her friends' families did. And so these other people could afford to bring little things to school, kind of trinkets and fancy pens and other kinds of things that she couldn't afford. And so she would just steal the things that would make her seem like everybody else. Nothing more, just the little things. And that was it. And the next thing she knows, she's being kidnapped and taken to a place far away from her home. We had been working for a while. She had had very low self-esteem, trouble concentrating, was agoraphobic. But she really wanted to understand what happened to her so she could explain to her parents about what had happened to her. And when she said she was ready, she invited her parents to my office for a session to share her thoughts. And she started by explaining how a program like that made her feel responsible for the abuses she received. She said to her parents, That's why when I told you about them making me stand out in the cold for hours, I said it was probably because they knew I needed that in order to correct my behavior. And when I told you that we were left hungry at times, I ended that by saying that it was a good way for us to remember to behave better the next day. And I really was on the fence. I was in between those two worlds, kind of justifying their bad behavior towards me. I was parroting what I had learned and what they had said as their justifications. But now that I've had more time to think about it, and I've been able to talk to a therapist about it, I can present my story in a much more accurate way, and I can use the word they instead of I after the word because. That was a very interesting phrase. I'll say it again. I can use the word they instead of I after the word because. Her parents and I looked at her quizzically, and her parents asked her what she meant. And she said, well, like I said, when I first got out, they had played with my head so much that they made me feel like kind of an abused spouse, I guess, or an abused child, that it had happened to me because I did something wrong, or I needed that corrective experience. And now I realize that I didn't deserve any of it. And that's made me truly angry about it, and angry with you. They were adults, and you're adults, and we were children. So now, I'm very clear about the fact that when they did something to me, it was because they, not I, they did not know how to work with children. They had jobs that they were not qualified for. They were given free reign to be abusive. They were making money off of you and other parents. And they were horrible. And so she took it one step further, which was quite a risk. And she said to them, I want to address 
how I know about you sending me to a place because you were scared. But the only reason I didn't tell you why I was stealing was, first of all, you didn't ask. But second of all, I didn't want to say to you to make you feel bad that it's because we didn't make as much money as my friends' families. So even if you had asked me, I'm not sure I would have told you, but not because I was trying to withhold information, but in order to protect you, I didn't want you to feel bad. And then the next thing I know, I'm being whisked away. And she stopped. Her parents didn't get defensive. They didn't deflect. They apologized. It took her a long time to get to that point where she could express herself that way and have clarity that way, and it took strength and bravery. But I am also aware that some of you do not have parents who are either around anymore or willing to have that kind of conversation. That doesn't mean you can't say these things, though. That doesn't mean you can't express them. You can still write them down. You can send them any way you want. Sometimes people will just put them up into smoke and burn them so they go out into the air. Or put them in the ocean, bury them underground after they've written them out. But the important part was that they gave their voice a chance to be heard, even on paper. It's also important to find someone to talk to who will understand. Someone who you know will be clear about the fact that you are not responsible for how you were mistreated. And it's true, you're never responsible for how you are mistreated. And to finish up, what's most important of all is that you learn how to tell yourself that in a very clear way. And you find a way to know it and believe it. Because explaining it to yourself and understanding it and really, really getting it is the most empowering and clarifying thing to do and an important place to start so you can tell others. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.